Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to everyone. He is risen. Amen. Indeed. Yes, since the very beginnings, the earliest days, really we have recorded of Christian people celebrating um, the birth of uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We have what we call the Paschal greeting, this, this, this call and response, this antiphonal thing that in Greek goes, Christo Anesti, and the response is, Adipos Anesti. He is risen, he is risen indeed, and it's repeated in languages all over the world. This morning as people celebrate the risenness of Christ, and that's what we're here to celebrate every Sunday, but particularly today. So I'm glad you're with us. Um, let's begin our time of worship with reading the psalm for the day, which is Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a talk to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities, which your compassion comes speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold in the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will give count your praise. Praise God for reading his word. Um, what do we need to pray for this morning as we come together? I'm sure there are lots of concerns. Yes, Ms. Open. I have a, a dear neighbor. Her name is Ravonda Lanning. Okay. And she's just found out she's got birth. Oh, goodness. Ravonda Lanning, um, bone cancer, uh, dear friend and neighbor. Remember her for sure. Um, what else this morning? I know we've got a lot of families um, really struggling with different kinds of sickness and, um, and loss to death and those kinds of things. And certainly um, our family has been one of those recently. I appreciate your prayers and your concern for us and all the ways that uh, fellow elders and, and church members have blessed us and, and helped take care of us and uh, kept things moving. Um, anything else specifically you pray for us? Let's just turn our hearts a little bit. Our God, it is so good to come before you. Um, always in this, but particularly on this day when, uh, as Christians, we pause to remember the risenness of your Son. When we pause to remember the ultimate miracle. The miracle that, beyond all others, demonstrates your love for us, your power over all things created and supernatural, that reminds us that it was for us, your people, that Christ died. Lord, this morning, help us to rejoice. Father, renewing us a right spirit of worship, um, a right spirit of celebration, of the goodness that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to go forth to share that with all around us for your glory. In his name. Amen. 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 Am
This old world and all its beauty rocks and dust. 
promise. Wholesale destruction of the objects of my nature plus. And it's all over, wake me up in my right mind. Call my name, I'll open up my eyes and say, You are the most lovely thing to me. And you are the most lovely thing that I have ever seen. You take my breath away and you sweep me off my feet.
something that happens around Easter. It seems like when you're pulling things together, it always gets a little crazy every time we plan an Easter service. You know, I don't know if you ever had those times like in, in Germany, it's called, they said it was due to the food. The food is um, a wind that blows down off the Alps, a warm wind that they say gives people headaches and makes sheep act strangely and all sorts of things. And they blame it just for everything coming and going. So we'll say it's the food. Um, so we're kind of diverging from the, from the day from Leviticus because we're going to take a look at a New Testament passage, logically enough, on Resurrection Sunday. So let me kind of reframe our sense of time and place here just a little bit, if you'll let me do that. Um, Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth, we're in 1 Corinthians. And Corinth, if you remember, is in Achaia, which is that part of Asia Minor that also included insular Greece is. And so um, it would be in the western part of Asia Minor. And with a crossroads kind of city, it was one of those places where you had trade routes that came together, you had people who ended up there because of that from all sorts of cultures and religions and backgrounds, and it was just this melting pot kind of thing. And so you had a tremendous number of different religious ideas, philosophies, and things all competing. And remember, this is a time, first century, this is a time when a lot of Western thought was really being birthed. I mean, yeah, this was the time when the Greeks were really doing some of the best writing and thinking, and it was just a powerful time. And so Corinth sits in the middle of all of that, sort of like America does today. Yeah. We are in just this, well, America's always been called the melting pot because of all the different nationalities that come here, but also because of all the variety of thought and religious opinion and all those kinds of things. And so Corinth, um, there were those folks who named themselves Christians, but who philosophically denied the resurrection of Christ. And a key part of that understanding that goes back to what was called the Areopagus. And if you remember, if you studied this in history or read it in the Bible before, the Areopagus was this kind of high plain in Athens, which was a place where stuff happened. It was where they came together for performances and speeches and political things. It was where the philosophers gathered and sat around and contemplated their navels or whatever it is that philosophers do. And it was where a lot of thought was birthed about things like religion and science and the natural world and that kind of stuff. Um, if you remember from Acts 17, Paul preached at the Areopagus, which um, was a pretty significant point in his ministry. And he talks about, in that speech at the Areopagus, he talks about how in coming there that day, he saw this temple to an unknown God. You remember that? They were so confused, they were so um, assaulted with all these different ideas and stuff that they had a record temple to a God who could not be known. That's the kind of religious landscape that the Corinthians were living in. And for me, it's an awful lot like the religious landscape that we live in in America, right? Um, it was there that a lot of the foundational ideas of Greek philosophy and thought were really formed. And as we know um, from our own experience and from our studies, you know, that Western Greek kind of philosophical mindset influences tremendously the way that we think today. It's just a part of almost everything about the way that we look at the world today. People who come from a more Eastern kind of mindset, kind of people who wrote down the, the Old and most of the New Testament, those people had a somewhat different outlook on the world. And so that's a significant thing, I think. And part of the discussions that happened at the Areopagus um, were um, the, um, the debates of what were called the naturalists. 
That's kind of a big category that includes a lot of different thinkers. Not naturalist in the sense of you know someone who studies nature, like we use the term today, like um, Sawyer's favorite, David Attenborough. Um, you know, we, if, you, if you, for some reason, if you've been under a rock somewhere you don't know David Attenborough, go out and look up his videos. Lush, magnificent cinematography. The man does a wonderful job of revealing God's creation through the exploration of nature. And he has that voice. And he leans in and he says, As I hang from the vine of the canopy, from Utah, he sets me as part of his own tribe. This is wonderful. I love listening to him. It's great. You know, sacrifice is very soothing. It's a great thing. But anyway, naturalist, not in that sense, but naturalist in the sense of people who looked at science as being the answer to everything. And that was a big part of. Greek thought, this rationalism, this thing of, if we can't describe it through our sciences, then it can't exist. And so from that, through the idea that there was nothing supernatural, the naturalists as a whole, and I say this includes a variety of different philosophies, but they had this idea that if something was beyond what we could see and touch and taste and feel and smell, if it was beyond those kinds of things, then it couldn't exist. There was no supernatural realm in the world, and they found themselves, you know, thinking of themselves as being very enlightened because they've grown past these ideas, these superstitious ideas of something that lay beyond the observable world. And I don't know about you, but I feel like in our world, we're moving sort of the pendulum swinging a little bit. We're starting to realize more and more what we don't know. The more we use science well, we're starting to understand the things that are beyond the canon of science, things that lie beyond what can be explained by mathematical formulas and observation and that kind of stuff. And if there are those things, and you've had experiences in your life, and I have, that point us to the idea that it is supernatural existence, that which lies beyond the natural world. But there were a lot of people who were teaching that that was an impossibility, and because of that, that the claim to resurrection of Jesus was an impossibility. It couldn't be because people didn't rise from the dead. You could observe that, you know. If you worked at the uh, local cemetery, you could see again and again and again that you're people that didn't come back. It just wasn't something that happened, right? So Paul's writing to the Corinthians about the situation that they're being faced with, these people around them, these philosophers saying it's impossible that there was a bodily resurrection of Christ. And they're surrounded by people who trust and worship all sorts of idols and false gods and things. And Paul begins by saying, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. I remind you, God, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And he says, it is this gospel, this truth, this literally good news about Christ, of which God's people are being saved. Unless, he says, you believe in vain. Now, Paul is not saying here that he thinks that their belief is in vain. Though there are definitely passages where Paul, you know, invites and encourages believers to check themselves to make sure that their faith is legitimate faith, and that they're not just deluded or fooled into thinking that they're saved, but that they truly have God-given faith. But what he's doing here is posing this hypothetical question. Could this gospel about which we live be in faith? And he proceeds to address the arguments and show why he's confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the true means of salvation of God's people. And he finds the gospel beginning in verse 3 through 11. He says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, 
and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not I, but the grace of God was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you have believed. So what did Paul believe is the true gospel of Jesus? That Christ died for the sins of God's people. That he was buried and he rose again on the third day. That's a key component of the gospel, Paul said. Following this, the resurrection of Christ was seen by a, a tremendous number of witnesses. And Paul himself says he was the very last to be appointed an apostle. Even though he was zealously trying to persecute the church when he was. And when Christ crucified is preached, Paul says God gives grace to believe for all those who are saved and are transformed by the faith in Him. And then he goes on, again in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Paul goes into the what if question. And why does the gospel matter? What difference does it make? And he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus himself could have been raised to life again. And if that is true, if Jesus remained in the tomb, then Paul himself is preaching a lie. Misrepresenting God, that's the sin of blasphemy, the most serious of all sins. If the gospel Paul preaches is false, he says, then those who believe themselves to be saved are actually dead and without any hope, condemned before God by their sins, destined for eternal hell. Those who have died ahead of them are lost and gone, and there's no hope for them either. And Paul finishes off by saying, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now I want to pause for a second here. Consider who's Paul's writing to here. He's writing to the elect of God, the church, those who believe themselves to be saved by faith in Christ and testify about that. And these were people, as I say, who were living in the midst of a pagan society. They were the exception, not the majority. They lived next to people who worshipped idols and little clay gods and unknown deities and believed that there was no supernatural force at work in the universe. Some of them, or some who believed that there was an unknowable God that you could never get close to. And they denied the Messiah who God had sent. Um, no doubt, in that kind of cultural um, melange, Christian people, those who, who openly testified about Christ and His resurrection, and put their faith in that, they were probably mocked sometimes. They were probably found themselves marginalized and discriminated against at times. Particularly when God's command for His people were wholly conflicted with the beliefs of people around them that ran up against those Greek philosophies that said there was no such thing as sin. That said that there is nothing beyond this world, and if you're going to have any fun, you better do it here and now. 
So on the whole, being a Christian in Corinth was not something that was easy, not something that was well respected. They probably tend to make it less likely to get a job or a promotion or be able to sell careers at the market, those kinds of things. All that to say that the experience of God's people in the first century Corinth was probably not a lot different than what we experience today in America. Our grandparents, probably even our parents, if they lived in the rural South for sure, lived in a world where being a Christian was a respected thing, something that was considered the norm, right? Um, when I was a kid, I'm only 54 years old, but I can remember when I was a kid, it was a normal thing. It was an expected thing that everyone in the community was part of the church and went to worship and testify about Jesus. Even the town drunk or the town prostitute knew that they ought to be in church whether they ever went or not. And it wasn't something that was really ever questioned by very many people. There were a few free thinkers, whatever, that came out of the, you know, the tail end of the 60s or whatever. But for the most part, in the society that I grew up in, it was a very accepted thing that you would be a Christian and that you would worship together with God's people on a regular schedule, and that was a good and normal thing to do. Man, the world's changed. Five, five decades, and now if you're a serious Christ follower, especially if you stay the Bible and trust it, you seem to live like Jesus lived. You look like a weirdo a lot of times in our society. You may have your crowd of believers that you fellowship with, and maybe some of your close friends and family believers, but you're probably aware, if you're a serious Christ follower, every time you go to the store or walk down the street, that you're the minority in society as a serious Christian. And Scripture tells us that's definitely going to get worse. We can already see that being a Christian can be a disadvantage in secular society. But that's going to worsen as we get closer to the return of Christ. Sometimes Christians and sometimes the church is ridiculed. Not all of it fully deserved. I won't say none is, but not all of it we bring ourselves. Maybe it's a disadvantage sometimes in the job market. Maybe a limit to can socialize with or who's willing to talk or hang out with you and talk about the gospel very much. It certainly, in our day and age, results in being called intolerant, judgmental, closed-minded. So while it's not as bad as it one day will be, it's not long to say we live in an era where it costs something that we sometimes follow Jesus. And writing to some people who were in very similar circumstances, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are all people most of the many. Because it costs something for us. Follow Jesus. They were sacrificing their lives. They were sacrificing position, power, and those kinds of things. If they were suffering for a lie, if they were gaining nothing, how pitiful would that be? But then Paul goes on. Verse 20 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man, by, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Remember, he's talking to God's people. Here he's not talking about a universal kind of salvation. He's talking to the church. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority in power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all these in subjection under his feet. Amen. 
through which says all things are in subjection, is plain means accepting those who put all things under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So Paul says, in light of the trials that you've suffered, in order to be known as people of God, imagine how pitiful it would be if there were no resurrection. But then Paul says, consider all the evidence. The massive crowds of witnesses who've seen the resurrected Jesus. Many of them, he said, are still alive and running around here in the community. People who bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. Even as I, Paul, witnessed with my own eyes an experience so dramatic that he was converted for a persecutor of God's church for passionate evangelists. And it's that very same thing with the women resurrected Christ that can, that must transform us if we're going to truly be before God. To know about Jesus is one thing. To know what the Bible teaches is one thing. But it's the power of an encounter with the resurrected living Christ that ultimately transforms us. And I don't know about you, but for me, my testimony hinges on experiences that go beyond what I can find on paper. Now, everything that I've ever experienced with God has reflected exactly what God's Word says. And so I trust that it will be true. But I've had personal experience of the presence of Christ in my life, and the joy that He's brought, and the knowledge of victory over death through the resurrection of Christ, as Paul proclaims to Praise God. You, have, you too can be saved. You too can glorify God in your life. Trust Him. Believe on Him. Know that Christ is arisen, so one day you should be here. Thank you. God bless you.
good to be with God's people and hear God's praise this morning. Let's uh, turn our attention to Professor Faith's Heidelberg Catechism today. Um, question 18 says, From where do you know that Christ is your mediator before God? The response says, From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Praise God for that truth. Thank you for being here today. He is risen. God bless you. Go in his peace.